Hello and welcome. You are listening to Rules of the Frame. I am your host, Connor Reed, and here is your other host, John Skinner. Hey. I almost called you Riley, so that's like, that's going to be something to get used to. Um, But just so for those of you who are listening for the first time, we are a film podcast. We pick a subject or theme and explore films related to those topics. Our overall goal is to encourage the general public to view film as more than just a piece of entertainment, but also a piece of art and something to discuss and explore. We are right in the midst of our Everyday and Adventure series right now, where we take a look at just kind of more of your average, ordinary, everyday sorts of films. And so this week we have a special guest on with us, uh, Caleb Maine. Hello, hello. Yeah, excited to have you on, Caleb. Well, thanks for having me. I've been a longtime fan of the podcast <laughs> and a longtime fan of movies in general. Um, yeah, I just always love the discussion that goes on with movies. Honestly, probably more than I do enjoy watching them. Like, I'm not <laughs> a huge cinematography buff or anything like that. But if there's ever... Like this one, um, a movie where there are pretty clear ideals at play. I love talking about it. So mm-hmm. I'm excited to get into this. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be fun. And uh, Caleb's wife, Amber, was on our Watership Down episode, which was in the midst of our animation uh, series that we did yeah. previous to this. And we were talking on there as well, just that like you were just some of the first like input that we had early on. Like I remember we had like maybe like four four or five episodes out or something like that and like i think you came over just like one time we were hanging out with a couple guys and like just like oh yeah i really like this and like i was like oh shoot like okay like i was like that was like the first critique like we ever got of the podcast i was like oh great like good to know (laughs) i hope it was good stuff Mm. i was trying to rack my brain because i do remember that conversation but I don't remember at all what I said. Um, so hopefully it was good and didn't leave you like super self-conscious about what you're doing. Oh, not at all. No, it like was that. it was really good. It was like before we had like any of our bits really, I think, where we had like maybe just started doing like the two words, but we're still trying to figure out like formatting and just how to make it more streamlined and all that. So no, nah, very, very right. good. Very good. Did you, did you not like the uh, cover art or something? <laughs> I honestly don't remember um, but I've always been a fan of the cover art good. I'll stand by it good. I'll stand by the cover art John so, did the cover so, art so. <laughs> so will I there we go oh man so like our, our first two contributors are here then because yeah John was the first one to or made the graphic and then Caleb was our first comment so there you go this critic. is like going back to the beginning all right full circle (laughs) the first art and the first critic where there is one there is almost certainly always the other (laughs) yin yin, yin and yang (laughs) oh man all right well i don't think we've mentioned the film yet um i mean obviously the listeners know because they clicked on the episode but uh we are discussing the coen brothers 2009 film a serious man and i think john's going to give us a quick summary of that all right so um the movie starts out in an old village in Eastern Europe where a Jewish man comes home to his wife, telling her a man named Reb Groshkover helped him fix his cart on the road and that he is coming over for soup. His wife tells him that Reb has died and that he must have met a Dybbuk, a uh, possessed spirit in Jewish mythology. Um, when Reb arrives, the man attempts to prove to his wife that Reb is alive, but she is unconvinced. She stabs Reb, who laughs and walks out of the house into a snowstorm. 
The man is convinced that they have killed Reb and that they'll be cursed, uh, and his wife is convinced that she has saved them from a dibbuk. Um, after the title sequence, we meet Larry Gopnik, uh, a physics professor in Minnesota in the late 60s, just as his life begins to fall apart. His brother, Arthur, is jobless and sleeps on Larry's couch. His son, Danny, is always high on pot and has his radio and $20 he owes a bully taken during class. His wife, Judith, wants a divorce so she can marry a widower. And his daughter, Sarah, just wants to wash her hair. On, to on top of all of this, at work, Larry is nervous about his pending application for tenure. He also has to deal with a student, Clive Park, who attempts to bribe him to receive a passing grade. After Larry refuses, Clive's father threatens Larry with a lawsuit if he returns the money or if he keeps it. Cy Abelman, the widower Judith wants to marry, quickly becomes a bigger part of Larry's family than Larry. He wants Larry to approve a get, a ritual Jewish divorce, so he can marry Judith without the, within the traditions of the faith. Cy lavishes Larry with kindness and warmth while making Larry and Arthur move into a motel. Judith takes control of the family bank accounts, leaving Larry with no money. Larry turns to three rabbis for advice. The first, a young junior rabbi, tells him he simply needs a different perspective, and that all the trials and banality of life can be beautiful if we look at them with wonder. The second, an older senior rabbi, tells a story of a spectacular miracle of a dentist who finds a vague message from God in a Gentile's mouth but refuses to say what it means, telling Larry that God doesn't owe him meaning. Larry is told he should meet with the legendary elder rabbi, Marshak. Cy dies in a car wreck, and Larry has to pay for his funeral. At the funeral, Larry watches his community commend Cy for being a serious man, and sees his wife grieve Cy like a widow. Arthur is arrested for sodomy and gambling, and cries that he wishes he had a wonderful life like Larry. Larry tries to meet with Marshak, but he is too busy thinking to meet with him. Danny has a successful bar mitzvah ceremony, despite the fact that he was high the whole time. He meets with Marshak, who simply quotes a Jefferson Airplane song, gives Danny his radio and $20 back, and tells him to be a good boy. Judith hints at restoration with Larry, telling him that Cy respected him. Larry learns he will likely be granted tenure but he receives a large bill and decides to take the bribe from Clive, changing his F to a C, then C-. Larry then receives a call from his doctor about a chest x-ray, with the doctor wanting to talk about the results in person instead of on the phone. In a growing storm, a tornado approaches Danny and his classmates as they try and reach a storm shelter in time. What a crazy note to end on. Yeah. Um, my two words for this are actually... Um, and this is this is a little weird, but hopefully bleak. Hmm. Um, because I, I, one of the thing, and and I, I this is one of the movie that I think is really interesting because I think um, it really lets anyone kind of interpret it how they want to. And uh, my interpretation, how I reacted to it, I'm almost certain is not the way they the Coen Brothers intended, but. That's how I reacted to it, so we'll talk about it. Uh, and that is that, like, by the end, it's kind of clear. Like, I, I talk about Judith having restoration. I, I don't necessarily think they're going to get back together or anything, but there's a sense that, that his life will return to normal and that some of some of the things that are going wrong are, or at least he's getting used to the normal or whatever and that everything's not going against him anymore. 
Um, and I think sort of the sense I got was like at the very end, the last two minutes, the last 30 seconds or whatever, really show actual trials that are really, really life or death versus what had kind of been just life going wrong over and over and over and over. And it feels like, it feels like, you know, this overwhelming torment for Larry, but in a lot of ways that ending, even though it's very bleak, I think kind of shows that like some of the things that I think the younger rabbi talked about, that life can be, um, you go through these trials, but if you look at them a certain way, you can realize that you can get through them. Um, and talking about the stuff he was going through versus the kind of big, you know, existential threats that, that Danny faces with the tornado and then he faces with presumably cancer or whatever at the end. Um, and so it, I, this is not the, you're not supposed to think this is a hopeful movie, but I, I kind of got the sense <laughs> of like, yeah, if you're, if you were going through what he was going through until the very end, that's stuff that you can survive. Like you can get through that. And, uh, you know, maybe in a dark way, mm-hmm. like you should be counting your blessings even in that horrible situation because it can always get worse. Interesting. Uh, so my two words for the film are no answers because that's all that Larry does throughout the entire film is just like ask questions of like, why me? Why is this happening? What is this? Like, why, what does it get? Why do we need this? Why, you know, just all of these different questions that are being thrown to him. And like, aside from a couple instances, like they rarely ever get answered. I mean, like, um, like his wife answers like the, oh, this is like a get, but like all the other questions, like, I didn't do anything. Like, why is this happening? You know, that those are just like semi-rhetorical, but he wants it to be like, have an actual answer to it. And he just like never gets like any of those questions answered. And um, not from like the rabbis, not from his friends or family or anyone like that. And I feel like that's just kind of, um, it plays into the Coen brothers' whole filmography is there's just so many of their films have to deal with just like these no answers endings where it really is left up to interpretation and like, like you were saying, John, of just like how the viewer interprets it. Like they're very just, I feel like postmodern in that of like, okay, yeah, you create your own truth for the movie by watching it. And I feel like that is like especially fulfilled in this one. And I, that definitely extends to the, the kind of the pre scene with the, uh, with the married couple that has nothing Mm -hmm. to do with the rest of the story where you you don't get to know what happened. You don't get an answer. You don't get a resolution on on which which of them is right. You know, kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I've been kind of flip flopping between two <laughs> options, but I'm going to commit to uh, I'll commit to passivity and chaos. Hmm. Um, with chaos, because this is and this isn't the most extreme example of a movie just full of kind of existential absurdity where. It's very obvious that everything going on in the world isn't meant to make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you already talked a lot about how there aren't answers to it, but um, this world is chaotic, and definitely Larry Gopnik's world is really thrown into chaos. Um, but how does he respond to it and everybody respond to it? It's this very passive, um, like, well, Hashim is Hashim. He does what he does. And uh, what are you going to do? And Or um, like throwing your hands up and saying, I didn't do anything. And that's exactly it. He didn't, didn't do anything and he's not really doing anything mm-hmm. um, 
to make anything better. Um, and so it's kind of just passive answers to all of the questions and passive responses to all of the um, situations he's in. And uh, yeah, my other two words were going to have to do with masculinity. Mm-hmm. And it uh, could definitely tie that in as far as like what that represents as a, a male character, mm-hmm. um, especially him as a, a husband and a, a father and a professor at his job and um, a male member of his Jewish community. Mm-hmm. He's just very unengaged yeah. with all of it and doesn't really have relationships with anybody um, that are thoroughly engaged. It's just kind of, mm-hmm. he's this passive rider on this crazy roller coaster. And he didn't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> but he's also, yeah, he's not doing anything. He's not doing mm-hmm. anything. Yeah. I feel like that's just, I mean, so much of the point of his character is like, represents like a piece inside of everyone that's always like asking questions. Like as soon as like something bad happens to us, like life is going good. And then all of a sudden, like, boom, like maybe even something small just happens. But you're like, wait, what did I do? Uh, just because so much of our like natural world is like, oh, actions have consequences. And so if there's a consequence, what action did I do to incur the wrath of that? And I feel like that's, all of Larry's character is just like yeah questions and like questioning the chaos like why is this happening and like just coming from like a very what seems like structured sort of background and I mean even just like his Jewish community is just very structured in faith and like even whenever he's talking with uh, his uh, friend I think it's not really told like what relation he has with the woman um, whenever they're at the picnic and she's yeah. like, you know, we, we're Jewish. We have, like, the well of, like, thousands of years of tradition to explain these things for us. And, right. and like, the entire time he's, like, looking for that and, like, just, you know, doesn't find, like, anything for that. And, yeah. That's so tough to, like, uh, just sit through that passivity. Because you want to shake him and you want to shake everybody. Like, do something. Say <laughs> something. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was actually one of my bigger... Uh, reactions to it too I, before you jumped on the call uh i think i was telling Cree i hadn't seen this movie before now and part of it you know i didn't really care about larry at all in this movie honestly and part of that was just being like all right he's not doing anything right the the, the changing of the grade is the first time he does a single thing in the entire movie and uh i think you know part of it's like watching this movie in spring 2020 it's like all right stop you know stop your whining like <laughs> like i don't have any i don't have much sympathy for him you know because it's like you, some some of these things suck but some of these things could be better if you just did a thing reacted right and it's it's very cringy right. some, it's very cringy especially mm-hmm. with sai sai <laughs> coming in and like Laughing, you know, hugging him and all that weird stuff, and he just he can't. Oh, he can't. Larry, how are you? Yes. Oh. He can't even like engage in a conversation with the guy. With like he's behind, he's behind a sentence or two every single time, and he can't even stand mm-hmm. up for himself to not move out of his whole own dang house, which is so frustrating. Yeah. So, I mean, that's definitely the point: is that he's inert and not doing, you know, not engaging with his situation right and i mean even just like whenever he does not even confront but gets confronted by 
his wife and Sai at like the restaurant. And it's like, they're the, those are the two that are having like the conversation and basically just like saying stuff to him and like making all of like these irrational claims are like, you know, we think it's best that you move out and live at the Jolly Roger and that you do this sort of thing. He's like, why don't you move in with Sai? And they're like, no, like he, I think like his line is just like, <laughs> Larry, do you jest or something like that? But just right. something like really like ridiculous. And they're like, no, you can't be serious. Like, why would I move in with him? Like, of course, like, you know, he's going to move in here into your house and like, you're going to have to leave and live somewhere else and live with your brother somewhere else, too. And just like all of these like outrageous claims. And I think that so much of that has like reduced his character to this level of like, oh, well, I almost like shouldn't even ask for anything because it's just going to get thrown back in my face because no one listens to him. Like the first things that you see of him are him just getting like trampled over by everyone. Like even whenever Mm -hmm. he gets to his home and is interacting with his kids and you're like, oh, he's going to be like the stern dad who like puts his foot down whenever like the kids are fighting and they're just like yelling at each other. And he's like, hey, stop doing that. And they just keep on yelling like, okay, dad, I need 20 bucks. Hey, dad, go fix like the TV. And like his wife comes in and is like, oh, you know, Larry, we need to talk about this and this and this. And it's just like chaos and anarchy. And like he doesn't get a word in or say in anything. Right. And it's just brutal. And he asks, like, he asks, what's going on? <laughs> no answer. They just keep doing what they're doing. Just another example is uh, like the first conversation with Clive. Uh, he's trying to engage and trying to call this guy out on what's going on. And it's like almost like water around a stone. Like Clive just doesn't engage with anything. It's just mm-hmm. very, very ambiguous. Very, uh, it's a mere surmise. And, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, I want to blame the character in and of himself for not engaging with everything. But there is some truth with the movie that mm-hmm. just his environment it refuses to acknowledge him as a person almost. Yeah. And it's not like he's even like, in a cutthroat business or industry or something like that, where it's like, oh, you have to like stand up and like, you know, proclaim your voice in order to be heard or anything like that. It's like, no, it's just kind of like a everyday suburban life where he works at a university where like literally his entire job is to have people listen to him. And like, that's the only time where people actually do. And maybe they don't, you know, maybe like no one's listening to him in like his physics class. And just like, so just one of my favorite scenes is like whenever Clive is first talking to Larry and he's like, no, like, just give me like another test. Like, it's okay. And he's like, no, no, no. Like, I can't give you the test. He's like, I understand like Schrodinger's cat. And he's like, no, it's, you know, it's not about the cat. It's like about like the mathematics that like my stories are just like ways to help understand the mathematics. Like, even I don't get schrodinger's cat and then he's like no 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 i get schrodinger's cat i don't get the math you know (laughs) like just the sorts of (laughs) things where it's it's so much shows larry's character of like okay he gets the things that are like absolute written down that's why he's in mathematics like it's a very stable thing it's a very like Mm. it's all about proof and like whenever it comes to anything outside of that whenever it comes to like using his own mental capacity to surmise an answer from something he just can't do it. Like even the examples he gives, he just like doesn't understand it. And I love that so much. Like how they just set that up (laughs) just like right off from the beginning. There's a kind of a social incompetence to it too, where like he doesn't even understand that these situations that he's in are obviously ridiculous. And like, he should absolutely not be paying for size funeral. He should absolutely not be 
Mo- moving out of his house, right? And yes, uh, <laughs> oh he, he's goodness, yeah. he's so. He's so unimportant in, in in his family that when he does move out, no one notices, right? Like the kids don't even react like their dad moved yeah. out, like it's nothing. But still, like he absolutely, like yeah. ridiculous. And he can't even like react to that. It, it's almost like hum- humanity, when it comes to how you react to, to the indignities of life, like life is a is a spectrum with, Larry Gopnik at one end and Larry David at the other, and he's like the he's like the anti Larry David. He won't. He can't even like <laughs> be upset with these situations, and like it turns me into that where it's like, can you just yell at them, please? Like, like this is ridiculous. <laughs> like, I don't even care right. if you. I don't even care if you lose the argument. It's so frustrating because these scenes get cut off before we even have resolution on them. So it's just like mm-hmm. it doesn't even the, the I, whether he or not he even gets to that point it doesn't matter like he's so in he's so in, incompetent in interacting with these people that you just cut to the consequences because you mm-hmm. know he's going to lose he's going to lose every fight every single time and it's just mm-hmm. yeah mm, i'm not even a violent person and neither is my <laughs> wife but we were watching this movie and it was like punch that guy in the throat before <laughs> he's able to hug you like this yeah. guy wants to marry your wife don't let him into your own house, hand you a bottle of wine, tell you all yeah. this stuff about how you need to drink it and enjoy it, and then give mm-hmm. you this, like, smothering, comforting hug. It's nuts. It does look like he gives a mean hug, though. Yeah, take the wine and then and then punch him in the throat. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Once yeah, you yeah, get exactly. the wine. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, it just cracks me up, like, I think the scene that I laugh the hardest in every time is the the scene whenever his wife comes in is just like, like, Larry, we need to talk. Like, it's not working for me. There's another guy. He's like, what? What is going on? And he just like, keeps on going- saying like, what? <laughs> what? And like his register just like goes up higher and higher each time. And just like when it's like, there's something with Cy, Cy Abelman. Cy Abelman. His repetition of that is just like so good. Like how it's- even just like, the basic answer he just like can't even fathom it and i love like the coen brothers like talk about how they love just kind of casting these roles that are like swapped from the usual bit of hollywood because it's like for most movies if like his wife was coming up saying that she was going to leave him it would be like oh yeah it's like this young attractive guy who like takes me places and does all the things that you won't want to do and then you just see sigh and he's just like this big you know, middle-aged balding man that it's just like, and you understand like his reaction all of a sudden, why he was like freaking out, why he said Cy Abelman so much. It's just, it's perfect. Like, I love that so much. He's, he's, he's a good hugger. Oh, I don't know if I've ever. <laughs> that's, that's the appeal. It's, it's all, she's all in for the hugs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's in it for the hugs. Mr. Softboy himself coming at you. <laughs> I can't. Uh, <laughs> never hated a character that much. I don't think. Really, I kind of yeah. love him. I mean, he's <laughs> awful and horrible, and he's just like you know he knows or he thinks that he's doing nothing wrong, and he's just like I'm here to support my friend, and it's like that just makes it so much worse. It's so <laughs> much worse. I was just gonna say I found Sai to be the only likable character because really? it's like 
You can't blame. I mean, it, uh, you can't blame him for going in on the paint hard like that. You know, he's trying to get what he wants. He needs that get. You know, and and <laughs> like, I don't, I, I don't blame him. Like, if it works, it works, right? <laughs> it's a, it's up to Larry to stand up for himself, and he doesn't do it. Oh that's, man, that's fair. Maybe I should hate Larry a bit more. Mm. I'm curious with the. Uh, like ghost of Psy visiting mm. well it's not even a ghost but the dream with Psy in it and he's slamming him against the uh the chalkboard yeah you know i uh i fucked your wife <laughs> <laughs> uh do we think he did okay so this is where i'm gonna break into like personal anecdote about the film so um Past guest Travis Olson from a Metropolis episode, he and I went to um, like a Coen Brothers marathon at a theater in LA. Like they were doing this all weekend long. Each night they were showing two films and like they're presented in film. And so uh, one of the nights they played a serious man and Fred Melamed, who plays um, Cy and uh, Sari Lennox, who plays Judith, uh, mm. were both there. And so they had a panel with them afterwards talking about the film. And, like, that was, like, one of the questions that they asked. Like, no way. one of the first questions the audience member was like, did you guys sleep together? And um, they're like, you know, we talked, like, long and hard about our backstory and just about our characters and all that. And we don't think that they actually did. We think it was, like, literally just purely a relational thing because he's, like, basically the exact opposite of uh, Larry in that, yeah. like, even just from a physical stance where he's, like, this big imposing guy and he just commandeers every conversation and just takes hold of, you know, like he doesn't back down. He doesn't let people walk all over him. He walks all over the people. Mm-hmm. And that's like what Judith wants, like more in the relationship. And they said, like, that's why they don't think that they actually slept together, that it was literally or just purely like almost a friendly, like relational sort of thing. Mm. That kind of that's that makes a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that 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 makes a lot of sense to me because like that makes it worse for Larry too because it's like you're not even yeah. really losing your wife to to a manstress or anything, right? Like you're you, like she just has a close <laughs> male friend, and that's enough. Yeah, like 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 they're just good friends, and that's she's like even having that's like yep, I want to replace my husband. Like yeah, <laughs> you don't even require anything more. Oh no, yeah, that is worse. It's brutal. I mean, just, like, the way that Larry is, like, beaten around is, like, so harsh. And, like, part of me wonders if, like, the Coens just, like, wanted to play God, where they literally wanted to make a character and put him through, like, just (laughs) hell and, like, all these different torments and, like, not do anything. And so, like, everyone's like, oh, well, it's, like, his circumstances. And I'm almost like, I blame the Coen brothers. Like, they're just brutal to this guy. (laughs) I, I think that's a good segue. Story. Yeah. Yeah. It's, ha, ha. <laughs> yeah. It is at the end. Uh, the, the, uh, that's a good segue though to like, I, I didn't know a lot about this movie, honestly, going in. Um, mm. I tried not to look stuff up, but what I did know from before was that it's, some people say it's Job. Mm-hmm. It's a Job parable, sort of. So what, what do you guys think of that? Uh, as a frame to understand the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, I've I've kind of gone back and forth on it. Um, I see definitely the similarities. I don't know if that's like 
really what the cones were like going for though um because i don't know if people have like really asked it directly i think they've just been like in interviews said like oh yeah it's very similar to like the story of job this this and this um but i think there's so many different things like thematically that happen with it like absolutely i mean even just kind of like the ending of it where there is like no good resolution like nothing comes back to him it just gets like worse and worse i mean the reason why like god lets satan test job is because it's like he's like the perfect example of like a person who follows Mm -hmm. god and satan's like oh well he's only a good follower because like his life has been good and like that's like literally the whole test when it's like larry isn't that like he's just like this normal average dude who doesn't even seem like that interested in judaism because you don't see him interact in like a setting like that where like um he doesn't speak Hebrew or Yiddish, doesn't read Hebrew. I mean, he does listen to music, but he doesn't, like, you don't see him in, like, the synagogue or temple, like, mm-hmm. in any other instance except for to meet with the rabbis to get, like, personal help. And it seems like that's, like, he's one of the people who's, like, uh, I mean, aside from, like, the cultural aspect is in it for, like, the self-help. You know, he's, like, I'm in it to find, like, answers or to, like, make my life better and that sort of thing. But doesn't, like actively pursue any of it and like that's like the rabbis don't really like tell him exactly like this is what you need to do like you need to read the talmud or you know like really dig into these like verses in the torah but instead uh kind of give like allegorical examples or like uh, even like the young rabbi who's just like just look at the parking lot god's in the parking lot and like this is a change of perspective. That's what it is, Larry. And then, like, it all kind of comes <laughs> crashing down when he's like, my wife is asking for a get for Cy Abelman. Oh. Oh, well, that does change things. You know, it's just like, <laughs> like even, like, the dumbfounded nature of, like, the other rabbis where they're just like, wait, what do you want me to do? Like, <laughs> like after um, Rabbi Nochner finishes his story and he's like, that's it? Like, what did you tell him? Like, what do I do? And he's like, oh oh well okay you know and it's just like they're like surprised that he's asking for like answers instead of like "Ah, this is like what some people do you know like don't worry about it it all kind of flows together which i don't really remember where i was going with that but just that's his yeah oh job that's right right Mm -hmm. the role of god is definitely different um he's very and i think this is I don't know. I wish I wish we had somebody that was a lot more familiar with modern day Judaism, and uh, really the nuances of their of Jewish mindset as mm-hmm. far as how they view God is kind of. I can't really speak for it necessarily, mm-hmm. but um, he's so much more of this mysterious, uh, and that's even said multiple times throughout the movie that. You know, we don't know. He hasn't said, uh, mm-hmm. except the mystery. Well, I think Clive yeah. is the one that says, except or Clive's the mystery. dad is. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and, you know, at the end of Job, there is this uh, account of God kind of telling Job he doesn't deserve answers, and uh, God is God. He's going to do what he's going to do. But that's more of a place, more from a place of authority than it is such a shrug of the shoulders like, eh. God is Hashem is Hashem. He does what he does. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's, yeah. Uh, Job is definitely, past faithfulness, 
tested, and then ultimately, mm-hmm. what we kind of forget about Job is that it was rewarded. Like Job got everything yeah. returned to him and restored, and this guy is uh, going through similar trials, but not at all in the same fashion. He didn't start mm-hmm. in the same place. He didn't um, endure at all the same, and he definitely didn't end in the same place. Yeah, with reward and restoration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it. It's funny. I'm. Uh, it's funny you guys said that because because I really had the same similar reaction that I, going in this is kind of the frame that I was watching the movie in, and by the end I was like, yeah, I'm not sure it's really a Job. It's directly relevant, even though I'd heard that. Um, I think Job just as shorthand for a guy that goes through a lot of trouble fits, but you know, there's three rabbis and Job has three friends that give him bad advice. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't even get advice from Marshak. Like, like you don't get that resolution. <laughs> and you know, the, I think the Coens might be subverting your expectation a little bit because, right, cause that's a, a little bit of a climax of f- seeing the 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 wise leader, and he mm-hmm. never gets to see him. His son does, and he quotes Jefferson Airplane. <laughs> yeah, it's so good too, and it's so good. And and it's funny because that scene, I'm not even sure if it's supposed to be like, oh, he's not, he's not very like he's wise or or i mean he's quoting a song that he knows well i guess he wouldn't know that the kid likes the song right maybe maybe he does well he he gave him back his head his like radio yeah it's like so many things so many things in the movie like maybe he's actually very wise because he's quoting something the kid would know and and trying to teach him something uh and uh but it's it's very ambiguous for sure. But yeah, there's definitely. I mean, God comes in a whirlwind and challenges Job mm-hmm. to you know to acknowledge who he is and not to challenge him. Uh, and so there's a whirlwind at the end, obviously. Yeah. But God's the in the parking thing, lot. You know, yeah, God's in the parking <laughs> lot. God is in the parking yeah. lot. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I by the end part, you know, obviously I was interpreting it this way and then rewatching it maybe it would kind of go away but I almost thought like this is Job but with with no God like mm-hmm. inst- instead of him challenge- being challenged by God you know instead of him dealing with God he's dealing with almost like a nihilist world mm-hmm. and so like maybe that's you know again Maybe that's just kind of the the Cohen brothers using God uh, using God as a metaphor, kind of for the world. But I kind of get the sense like there's a cruel world out there, and he is kind of questioning the world in the way that Job does. But by the end, you know, he has the audacity to kind of almost like he he's maybe he is the perfect person, right? Because he's just mm-hmm. passive, right? And maybe that's the correct way to react to a world like that and at the end he tries to take some ownership and and that's when the vengeance comes but Mm -hmm. this way i'm talking about in my mind kind of fell apart at the end honestly and i I just think (laughs) there's elements of it in there Mm -hmm. too for sure but i don't you know i've seen a lot of headlines about it being job in suburbia or whatever i just remember reading that Mm -hmm. and not i'm not 100 percent sure that that's a great way to view the movie yeah 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 i'm definitely in that in that boat too i i think it's just kind of 
I, it's one of the things where people are like, oh, it relates to this and this. And so there's like this much more meaning coming out of it from that. And it's like, I don't think that was the intention at all. Like, if anything, my position on it now is like, this is like the two weeks that take place before like the story of Job. Because, you know, like the whirlwind happens and it's like, so the his like actual quote unquote Job story is going to happen at after the movie. You know, mm. whenever like God comes in the whirlwind, sucks up everything like his son probably dies and he has like cancer and like that's when everything like starts falling apart and like that's maybe more of when that happens maybe yeah, yeah. it feels I'm, like i'm not a fan of it <laughs> like uh, we know the coen brothers have engaged with the idea of nihilism before because obviously oh, they yeah. made the big lebowski and oh yeah um uh, a bunch of their other no movies just really, and, yeah. yeah they really showcase this kind of like are we helpless um mm-hmm. question and uh so we know that they've already kind of played in that headspace and I don't know what they, where they fall with any of those questions, um, how mm-hmm. they would answer them, but we know they're at least thinking in that frame. And then, um, with this, it almost feels like somebody with the vague kind of cultural understanding of Job mm-hmm. interpreted that through this nihilistic, nihilistic existential, um, absurdity lens of like, Yes, that is the world. It just all this stuff happens, and you can't control mm-hmm. any of it, and you don't get any answers, and that's it. That's all you're left with. Which yeah. again, I think again we forget how Job ends uh, a lot frequently, but that yeah. is the legacy of Job, and I think maybe that legacy plays out. No, I mean that definitely makes sense because the generation in the story, like the Coens, aren't in Larry's generation. They're right. like his son. Uh, and I think that is something that a lot of people kind of like almost forget for the movie where they're like, oh, is it like autobiographical where like they're Larry? And it's like, maybe they're parts of Larry, but like you can tell like so much of like the kid's experience is their experience too. Mm -hmm. And like, they're like, yeah, you know, we were young, like we smoked pot and like, you know, in the back of the gym and like, you know, just that sort of stuff. And I think they said they were both high for their bar mitzvahs. Um, (laughs) and so like that, that was just like a very personal scene in that sense um and i think so much of their worldview kind of plays into that where uh, i mean this is just all assumption on my part there's no fact that i know of supporting this but just kind of like my gauging from their films is they're kind of like more of the side where it's um where a, a lot of my jewish friends who i talked to um about this were saying like judaism is so much more of a cultural thing now than like a um like a spiritual thing. Like mm. it's more about the tradition and like how we interact in everyday life than like our focus on God. And I think that's kind of like where a lot of the Coens come from mm-hmm. and where even like a lot of the story of this comes from because, you know, like we said, like Larry doesn't like regularly practice like reading the Torah that we know of. And mm-hmm. he doesn't like you, you don't see him in like, prayer or worship or anything like that and it's much more like self-indulgent in that sense for him and i think that's just such a fascinating you know view on it be and like even just kind kind of compared to films that are like about like christians where it's like you see them going to church all the time and like praying and like reading Mm -hmm. their bible you know like that's just like always a trope of like christian characters and to have like um, like these Jewish characters, or at least like Larry's character 
not do any of that. I think it's mm-hmm. like just such a really uh, fascinating like worldview shift from like the Coens. And like I've heard critiques on both sides. Um, like I was talking to one of my friends about it and she's like, you know, like I don't think at least I can like fairly judge like the representation of Jewish culture at the time because it's so different from like how it is now. Like back then it was so much like you had your group who you lived with and like that was kind of it. Well, like now it's like a little bit more international and like you don't have like your own little community as much anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, she was just saying, she's like, you know, I'm Jewish, but I don't believe in God. And, um, and I think that some of that kind of like plays into how some people like interpret it or like we're kind of more offended by it or less offended by it. Interesting. Yeah. I, I think Larry is not like, they're not commending him on his, his place in the community. I'd say more than faith, but I think he's kind of supposed to be representative of a, of a, of someone who's being, uh, is engaging with his community. Um, Mm-hmm. I don't think that, you know, I think there's that contrast there, but I think within this culture that they're trying to portray, he's not, like, being selfish or, or not being engaged. I mean, his son is in Hebrew school or whatever. Right. Yeah. Like, he is, he is he as far as it comes to, like, expectations for his family, I think that there's a sense that he's he's doing everything right. Um, and I, I think there's more of a critique of Judaism of of like the leadership. I think mm. that the the rabbis are not portrayed in a way that's very good. I think I think kind of I think it's his sister. I don't know. Uh I couldn't figure out who she was that was telling Larry to go to uh yeah, see, see the rabbis, yeah. but I th- I th- I think it's his sister cuz the Arthur's there too, so I think they're all siblings, mm. but um I I think she's kind of representing what the Cohen brothers are maybe saying was pitched to them. And then they're kind of responding with, well, yeah, but this is what we got Mm -hmm. these two, you know? And I think the younger, I think the younger rabbi comes across a little bit better because Mm -hmm. by the end, somewhat, he's somewhat right that there's some perspective that's needed and maybe in a, in an ironic way, but versus the second guy that just (laughs) refuses, like the, if he's telling a true story, right, within yeah. the universe of the, of the film, if he's telling a true story, that's, like I said, like a mundane and yet completely spectacular miracle <laughs> that is just absurd, right. like oh, up with, you know, the sort of absurdities that the Coen brothers always have in their movies, but like from God. Mm-hmm. But yeah. he, refuses, he refuses to interpret it or like even <laughs> guess on what it is and it's just ridiculous. It has to have meaning. Like it has to. Yeah. And yet. It has to, so there's just So either he's lying, yeah, he's lying <laughs> or like there's this idea that like even even this even the spectacular things the the transcendent things that you might run into become torment torment like they'll torment you because you don't get an answer on what they mean. So, like, I, I think there's definitely... And then you have Marshak, who is distant and doesn't even engage, yeah. you know? So I think that there's kind of a generational critique of different... And I don't know that much about, you know, 20th century American Judaism, you know, in the 60s and stuff of, like... I don't even know if they're, like, reformed or, or what tradition they'd be. And I think... Would they be reformed or conservative? One of those two, I, I bet. Yeah, but, I think reformed... Um, it seems like reformed, yeah, and it, it. I I feel like the young guy is very much mm. 
a reform to like would represent more like now yes mm-hmm. or in the years after yeah post 60s but like even that's not a great answer mm-hmm. you know that he gets so i think i think there's definitely a critique of of the established establishment because it's like if you're the coen brothers you're, yeah if you're the coen brothers it's like uh i could have gotten all the useful knowledge and wisdom that i got from those three collectively from listening to jefferson airplane yeah you know like <laughs> just find somebody to love and that's all you got to do um I, I mean i do love knockner's punchline whenever he finishes with the story or whenever he um he's like what'd you what'd you tell him he's like oh well, you know i told him and he's like should i you know change my life should i do this should i start being good to people should i you know check on patients teeth and he's like the teeth don't worry about it. Being good to people can't hurt. <laughs> like that's like the response. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, why not? Sure, that's your meaning. Go for it. You know, yeah. if it relates, then okay. Just and I best. think that plays into the Coen Brothers like worldview, where it's like it's all subjective. You know, like you get to choose what do you want it to mean. Yeah, and and in that, it's like, well, what's your what's the point of you then? Like mm-hmm. as a rabbi, like what what do we need you for? You know, there's not really anything religious beyond the culture that's needed. I think. Mm-hmm. I think there's definitely that's kind of the the this most vicious satire in the film for sure mm-hmm. is his answer. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if they meant to be that pointed with it, but I definitely walk away from the movie like, oof, those rabbis are not painted in a good light. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it kind of reminds me of uh, the film, like, Cavalry with, like, Brendan Gleeson, where, you know, he plays the Irish priest who, like, like everything is going wrong, like, his, like, parish is mm-hmm. burnt down and all those sorts of things. And it, like, I mean, it very much just feels like, you know, a critique of, like, the Catholic Church. And, um, I mean, you just kind of feel that, like, seeping throughout. And he's, like, also kind of a Job-esque character. He takes more action did I say cavalry too? I meant Calvary, but um, mm. yeah, a little different. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> sorry, Calvary. Um, I think just those sorts of like reco- like personal recollections on like faith growing up are just so fascinating in film, and I mean stories I'm always drawn to, just like people recounting their own personal experiences. I love that. Mm. Should we talk about some of like the performances and all that? Because honestly, I think Michael Stuhlbarg got gypped because I think he should have gotten an Oscar for that performance because he was absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah. Uh, to make me that angry <laughs> is is a sign of a good performance for sure. Yeah. Like he's so he still comes across as a character, and he really shouldn't. Mm-hmm. You know, he really sh- he really seems like nothing, but he really. You know, I, I still, even though I was frustrated by him, I had more sympathy for him than I think if you were to read the screenplay, you would come out, come out with. Yeah. Um, so I think he did a really good job. Mm-hmm. Uh, who did who did he lose to? I, he wasn't even nominated. He didn't even nominate. No, which wow. I think is crazy. Like, I can't remember who it was that won that year. Was that Jeremy Renner for the Hurt Locker? I don't think he. Mm. They gave it to the Joker again. Two years in a row. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there was that old Onion article that was like, they give Best Picture to Airbud Two for the twelfth year in a row. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Jeff Bridges nobody, won it for a Crazy the, Heart. Oh, you're you're less angry now, aren't you? A little bit. I like Jeff Bridges a lot. I forgot that he got an Oscar, but, but I mean, good for him. 
It should have been a nomination, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely insane that he didn't get it. Like, now that I'm he, taking a step back, there's a pretty obvious devotion to the role. Like, mm-hmm. he, com- I got completely lost in it, like forgetting he's an actor and fully yeah. believing he's this shrimp of a man that I can't stand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's like one of my favorite actors too. This is like my first introduction to him. Like, I think I watched this film maybe at the end of high school or something, uh, or maybe the summer right after my senior year. And it was like one of those ones like I've talked about, like so many other films on here of my first watch where I watched. It, I was like, I don't think I really got that. And I was like, OK, it's it's pretty good. And then I like revisited a couple years later. I'm like, this is like a masterpiece. Like this is yeah. absolutely incredible. And like but his like performance still like stuck with me. And I was like, oh, he's like maybe one of my favorite actors now. And like I love him just in everything that he does. Um, also, in terms of performances, I don't know if I've ever seen a more accurate picture of uh a young person high as the sun (laughs) (laughs) like leaning out of the bathroom and like having his eyelids kind of stick together as he bleeds (laughs) oh man i was just talking about this with like uh my girlfriend claire about how one of my least favorite things in like modern cinema is actors pretending to be hippies where there's like oh yeah man life is so crazy like oh i'm so high right now and it's just so like over dramatized and i'm like mm-hmm. i don't buy that but it's like this kid i'm like yep i buy that yeah, <laughs> totally totally it's like it's like how do they know what they look like yeah. when they were kids but i guess there's there's two of them so they looked at each other yeah <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all of these performances are just so good. I love a good film with, like, not nobody actors, but, you know, actors that aren't, like, big celebs. And mm-hmm. I feel like the Coens are just so good at, like, picking, like, lowbrow actors who just knock it out of the park. Yeah, this uh, this movie definitely sat with me, and I definitely, like, it didn't overwhelm me with its bleakness or anything, but it definitely sat with me, and I was thinking about it. And I think there's something really... I think the performance is a really, really big part of that because you kind of get a sense that what should have been a joke really comes across as real, as ridiculous as it is. Like like that scene where Arthur is in the pool, like that is very mm-hmm. funny, but also very sad. Mm-hmm. Like they really nail, he really nailed uh, kind of the, the sadness and absurdity of it without becoming just a parody of himself yeah. even though he definitely was you know was over the top um but yeah just that that he was able to really genuinely sell the idea that he was jealous of larry mm-hmm. was really classic bing bong <laughs> <laughs> everything about that guy's run and his posture and everything um like i was just in, amazed and how he captured uh, what's the noun for like patheticness? I guess. Yeah. Uh, Bing bong. Bing bong. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh man. What sticks with me also is. Marshak's like delivery of that line at the climax, quoting mm-hmm. Jefferson Airplane and everything. Um, 
like I know nothing about that actor and obviously it wasn't a huge role but mm-hmm. um I guess just also the stillness of that scene the suspense of him like being high and walking into this room that's full of these crazy study materials yeah. uh, from all sorts of life and then just like he was very well framed for that delivery mm-hmm. but it also worked like that stuck with me pretty hard like, yeah that's so good forgot so many scenes and on the rewatch remembered like oh i forgot this was even a thing with this movie but the one that i think mm-hmm. will never is yeah that final kind of question and answer and it's almost like kind of like it's funny but it's almost like kind of sweet too because it's like the first time where someone's getting down onto someone else's level like everyone else is just kind of on their own plane throughout the entirety of the film and like don't really care about what everyone else is doing and even if they like like sigh where he's he's like more condescending with it where it's like he doesn't get down on larry's level because like (laughs) larry like literally wants him to like abuse him and like so he can have someone to be like angry at like in his dream you know whenever he's just like slamming his head against like the chalkboard and Mm -hmm. it's like that's like the response that he wants from this like he wants it to be a fight sort of thing instead of him just being like it's okay we're gonna be fine larry like no one's playing the blame game (laughs) oh my goodness my blood is still boiling (laughs) (laughs) sounds like sounds like you need a hug (laughs) don't touch me (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah it's uh, it's the marshak like i really want to interpret it as generous like i want it to be a a cathartic moment mm -hmm. because the rest of the movie is just so meaning you know so much bleakness and and banality and everything but part of me is like is he supposed to be incompetent Mm -hmm. or is he supposed to be wise i really like i said that before but like I'm not sure what the point, like, what you're supposed to interpret it. Like, is that another parody of aloofness, or is mm-hmm. it the only the only leader that actually speaks to the sun in a way that's, you know, meaningful? Because I think that that obviously that's that's the the Coen Brothers composite character kind of the closest thing to them in the movie, mm-hmm. and it's like I wonder, did they have an experience like that that was really meaningful to them? Or was it just absurd and they felt like they got away with something? And I don't know. Yeah. I really don't know. I think it differs depending on... So, on the rewatch, like... So, he says the quote and actually misquotes the song. I don't know if that's super important. Switches out joy for hope. um, Mm. And all the hope within you dies. Then what? Is what he asks. And then starts talking about the members of the airplane. Mm -hmm. um, And after doing so... He just sends him off with, be a good boy. And I always interpreted that, or at least on the first two watches, as kind of the answer to the question of then what? Mm. What do you do when life is going nuts and nothing makes sense and all the hope within you dies? Uh, Be a good boy. Yeah. Do your best. (laughs) But if it's not an answer to that question, then it is just kind of this absurd rant that he closes with just kind of a send-off and it's not really connected i don't know what do you think do you think that is kind of the the answer the movie is providing um well i have like two thoughts on that like well one going back to john you asking about how the coens feel about it in an interview they talked about how the reason why they wanted to make this film was because they had an experience like that whenever they were young they had this older rabbi who was just kind of like this mysterious figure who like no one really knew about. And they only met like 
on their bar mitzvahs and it was just like a very much like ominous thing like how it happens to uh, their son in the Mm. film and so like that's kind of like the germ of the film comes from that it's interesting that they saved it for last but i think there's like a bit of wiseness to marshak's character where he's uh i think because he's like he's been listening to music and like been studying like maybe just like the culture and kind of sees like oh well the kids have their new philosophers in music so like what are they going to need me for so like the last thing i can impart is just you know be a good boy that's all i can say anymore hmm does the movie begin and end with that that song yes that's what i thought yeah i mean aside from the prologue right beside the little vignette thing do you guys want to know what the thing that distracted me in this film was? What? The earpod. Oh. The 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 singular the, one. How is you listening to that music? No, the fact that there was one in the sixties. I mm. I was like, is this anachronistic on purpose? <laughs> like seriously, I I had to pause the movie and like Google when earbud like oh ear earbuds were invented uh-huh. for music because I was like. That's crazy. I thought they didn't have those till like the eighties with Walkmans. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't get an answer. I oh, don't really? know if that was intentional wow. or. I would assume I so. Know. It really did. I had to solve that. Pro- I had to try and solve that problem before I continue watching. Because it's like I thought it was a sixties movie. Yeah, and it was, but because that was Jeff- Jefferson Airplane was still Jefferson Airplane mm-hmm. yes. at the time, right? Yeah, they were not spaceship yet. Okay, right. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I would assume that that was actually like that. I mean, just from knowing, you know, the people that the Coen brothers work with, they're all about, like, authenticity and, like, are very particular on those sorts of things and have their hands in, like, a lot of the production design and props and all of that sort of stuff. So I bet they personally oversaw that, especially, like, I mean, it's, you know, what they call in the business, like, a key prop because it's used, like, for multiple shots, like, multiple characters interact with it, handle it all that sort of stuff. So of course you're going to be very particular with that sort of thing. And it's kind of plays into the theme of like listening throughout the film. Like the first shots we get of both. um, Gosh, I just forgot the kid's name. What is it? Danny. Uh, Danny. Uh, Danny and Larry is like, you know, the earbud in Danny's ear. And then the, the not stethoscope. What's it called? The whatever thing that the doctor's using to look into Larry's ear and it's like all about them listening and there's so much of the film that's about like communication and miscommunication mm. and the fact that like Danny doesn't know what he's saying whenever he's practicing you know Torah he's just listening to a record and like listening to like the verbiage and like how it sounds instead of actually knowing what he's saying and Larry just having like all of these miscommunications like l- where his like catchphrase is what you know and, like he just doesn't <laughs> understand people a good point. Well, I I bet I bet they had that ear earbud. Yeah, I bet that's I bet I mean I bet that they had a memory of having that, and that was a big thing. It just it totally did not mesh with my understanding of the history of audio technology. Yeah. <laughs> Minor detail, <laughs> definitely distracted me. And then because I thought it was earbuds, I was like, wait, is that like what is that? It's obviously a radio. Like it could only be a yeah. radio, but like. It made me think, like, what? Yeah, I was just totally... First five minutes, I was totally out of it. And I, it reminds me, though, that it's interesting because I, I think you're talking about cutting back and forth between that scene and the x-ray scene mm-hmm. is a really important part of the movie, actually, mm-hmm. because it kind of disorients you, not as much as I was, probably, but, 
like it 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 kind of distracts you because if you opened with the x-ray scene it would be kind of a was it Chekhov's gun the whole movie where you're like why is he doing that what's the point of that but I didn't even think about it the entire movie mm-hmm. and then it comes in the end with the call and I think that was really interesting because they don't really cut they don't cut between that's the only time they do it the only whole time movie, right yep where they yeah and and it really it's basically we have to show this but we don't want you to you know it's a hmm. magic trick we don't want you to, to remember it because mm-hmm. otherwise because I mean again you open with an x-ray that's what you're thinking about the rest of the movie is oh man he's gonna get cancer because everything else is going wrong yeah also it looked like a rocket ship back (laughs) then totally did looks like he was about to be blasted with flame (laughs) i mean it's smart filmmaking though because otherwise you know it'd just be it would seem ludicrous i got the end if there wasn't that scene at the beginning where like he gets a call from a doctor who is just like uh yeah, we need to talk to you about some test results. And you're like, what? That like came out of left field. That's like literally there just to like make things more dramatic. But like by having that like at the beginning and and being like, oh yeah, no test results are fine. Like I'm healthy, I'm good, you know. And and I mean, it's good setup. So this is just a random question. Why do you guys think they had the tornado bearing down on the kid? his kid instead of him mm. and then had him face more of a like the it seems like the tornado tornado is a more uh is a more dramatic ending yeah and yet it's not for larry himself right that part was interesting to me i didn't really you know i don't know if there's any meaning behind that but i thought that was interesting that he the, it's maybe a job another kind of job reference just obliquely that He's facing anguish, but his son is facing, you know, death because he's going to lose mm-hmm. him potentially. Although, I mean, they could get in the shelter. It could also yeah. be a generational thing where the younger generation kind of sees the storm when it's, mm. you know, it's probably tornadoes wipe out towns. It's not uh, going to be just that school. But right. I don't know. Mm. I've wondered that to you like why the school and not mm-hmm. like his house or mm. even yeah him at the office um, yeah but i i mean if that question is worth asking about like why that character specifically that's the only thing i could think about that character is it's you know, like the younger generation and i think we've pretty well concluded that probably the one the filmmakers themselves relate to more one interesting like uh visual thing that i noticed this last time watching it is the scene with the last scene with danny like right before this in like him uh in the classroom and then going outside because of the tornado is like him at uh talking to marshak and like while he's walking through and he looks around and sees like the specimens and sees like all the teeth stuff which is also an interesting like throwback to knockner and you're like mm-hmm. oh is the are the teeth important and, like, the last thing he looks at before he talks to uh, Marshak, he looks over and there's this giant painting mm-hmm. of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And mm-hmm. then it cuts to Larry uh, changing Clive's grade. And I was like, oh, is that, like, the consequences of his action? You know, of, like, doing that is, like, is he sacrificing Isaac? Like, is uh, Danny Isaac then? And because of, like, his actions, you know, the consequences of the son and all that. But Oh, yeah, interesting. That's a good, good call. Good, good catch. I didn't notice that. I didn't know. I didn't 
register what the painting was. Mm-hmm. But and I I put it in the summary because it was a small detail that I really appreciated, which was he doesn't just change a grade from an F to a C. He changes it from an F and then to a C minus. Yeah. Like there's that little bit of like like in some ways changing the grade is kind of going is still going along mm-hmm. with it because it's the only option he feels like he has but then there's that little bit of rebellion so it's like there's even ambiguity there it's like is you know if 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 god is 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 replaced with ni- you know this nihilist careless universe that's actively hunting him or whatever yeah. uh <laughs> is the sin is the sin taking the bribe or is the sin uh going beyond that and and changing the grid you know there's yeah. there's two things that could be that really are are the 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 unleash the the vengeance if that's what's coming at the end um but yeah i i, I really like that because it's like that that may actually be his only action that he takes is the c minus right versus the first one because you know uh that's his first act of rebellion against the world yep might be true mm-hmm. um alternatively and yeah, not to throw a wet blanket on it, but I feel like if the tornado was coming for him, the news about the cancer would be nothing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Make any sense. Yeah. I think it's kind of extra dramatic effect. I mean, just showing, like, begging the question even more of, like, oh, why is this happening? Like, that's literally, like, the question that it leaves the audience with. Like, at the end when you're like, wait, why? Like, why did that have to happen to the kid? And It's another thing where, like, it has to mean something. Like, it has to. Mm-hmm. And yet, yeah, the movie's not going to give you that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and almost actively tell you, no, it doesn't. Don't worry yeah. about it. One of the other fascinating, like, tiny details that I don't know if this was just, like, I mean, probably not coincidence, but, um, you know, the song that Larry always listens to whenever he's, like, trying to calm down and relax. <laughs> and um, if you, like, watch through the credits, like, that's the last song that's, like, played at the end. So it's like, oh, are they, like, trying to, like, lull the audience then and like give them peace but like you don't really know why it's peaceful to you because you can't understand it and yeah i still do want to hear john's take on the jefferson airplane thing do you think that song means anything is that like an answer to any of the questions like i said i want there to be that whole marsh scene especially like i want that to have a lot of meaning so i kind of that's what i'm going with because mm-hmm. uh i think there being kind of this this experience that they had that was really meaningful to them um, makes a lot more sense to me than it just being another indignity of absurd nonsense. I think I think I like your interpretation. I like the interpretation of you know him looking at the culture and trying to teach through that. And and yeah, it ends up being him misquoting it and then saying "be a good boy," which is pretty basic. But I like the idea that he's he's really reaching down for the first time in the movie mm-hmm. just because um otherwise that's kind of the climax of the movie and otherwise it's just really disappointing and i don't want to deal with that so <laughs> <laughs> what is that you just needing to see meaning where the movie is not necessarily giving it to you uh yeah that's a yes <laughs> nice. i love too just like even the generational differences of the characters where Aside from, like, two instances that I can think of, none of the adults cuss. Like, there's the scene when Sai is, you know, like that we talked about in the dream sequence. And then mm-hmm. whenever Arthur is kind of having his breakdown. Yeah. And even then, he's, like, almost childlike whenever he's, like, running away to, like, a pool in, like, his underwear and all that. And it's, like, that's, like, a very, like, childlike thing to do. And then, you know, it's just kind of yelling 
at the top of his lungs, but then all of the kids are cussing all the time. And like all of the adults are so uncomfortable with talking about like the harsher things and like can't even say sex. Like whenever Judith is just (laughs) like, this isn't about whoopsie doopsie. And like whenever, uh, uh, Larry is like talking with the lawyer. He's like, no, 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 no. There was no, no, no hanky panky or anything like that. And mm-hmm. it's like, they can't even like say it and are so uncomfortable with it. But the kids are just like, oh yeah, I just throw it out like everywhere. So you have a family with a lot of dysfunction and you have multiple households and they go between the houses and nobody seems to notice when they leave or come by. And, uh, you have a lot of visits to lawyers mm-hmm. Are you saying that they're in a state of arrested development? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. You're the worst. I'm sorry. What do you think is like the significance of... Because uh, you were saying like Larry doesn't take action until the end, but I think one of his actions is going over to Mrs. Samsky's house um, and like kind of knowing what he was getting into, like going over there and like that kind of being like his almost like active rebellion he's like all right i'm done being the nice guy and he's like i'm gonna go like cheat on my wife even though she's like divorcing me and all that that entire thread is bizarre to me Mm -hmm. and i don't know like it almost part of it was like i wasn't clear whether it was a dream sequence at first Mm -hmm. i thought it was too i mean at the end it was but like her actions are so bizarre like yeah everyone else he deals with is very I would say you know shorter with him and and at, you know the whole thing with Sai at the restaurant is so bizarre and 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 acting in this irrational way and she's almost the only person on the other end where like you sh- why are you smoking pot like she's super chill and, <laughs> and like smoking pot with him and it's just completely in contrast with everything else and I I don't know because mm-hmm. it, it is you're right he, it is an action that he takes but it, it almost didn't register for me because I was kind of confused by yeah. by the meaning of that I, it's, I mean it's obvious he obviously represents kind of the, the counterculture she's kind of the, the hippie sort of you know yeah. his son is smoking but that's it whereas she's kind of the, the decor of the house and everything is very yeah. you know 60s so I, I, I don't know. I thought it was gonna go. I thought there was gonna be more in that storyline, and it never really resolved with anything. Yeah. So I don't know. So we've been talking about him being disengaged, but he's not disinvolved. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was like one of the he he is taking action. Definitely one of the few examples of him taking action. But that action is what like almost escapism to uh, go to this lady that is completely outside of his situation well i guess not almost sorry i'm also just thinking out loud here too um but like yeah he just goes and like chills and smokes pot at her house and like really is not engaging still um he's doing the exact opposite of that taking a step out of his own life and um and then what happens is like his life comes crashing back in with sirens and they've got his brother in handcuffs and like He's not able to kind of stay in that dream mm-hmm. for long at all. Yeah, it is odd. Uh, I will take that opportunity to segue into a different point. We've been talking a lot about like the kind of philosophy and theology and just like character study. 
but I love like the technical side of this film as well. Um, so Roger Deakins is the cinematographer for the film. He's one of my favorites, one of the greatest of all time. He shot like most of the Coen Brothers work, and like I think this is like some of his best work. Like it's absolutely incredible, just like how well shot this film is. And John, I remember talking to you whenever I was making my senior film of like like having like visual reference points and trying to make it like a beautiful film. And like I think you said something along the lines of like I don't get why like movies that have millions and millions and millions of dollars like for a budget can't make their movie like beautiful as well why it always has to look ugly this is like such an example it's like where you can shoot like a quote-unquote planar movie um beautifully because this is like incredibly shot and it's just like usually like interiors driving and a couple exteriors and that's it yeah it might be one of his best works Mm -hmm. just because it's i mean the suburbs are boring yeah like (laughs) yeah to make that look interesting in a way where I was never visually bored with the movie at all mm-hmm. is very interesting. One one show that kind of has the same effect of, of really uh, taking mundane things and making them interesting. I think there's a, a big difference in the, the way that they do it, but is a Better Call Saul really reminds mm-hmm. me of that. Obviously, yeah. um, Breaking Bad too, but Better Call Saul has, I think, even more visual. Like the the settings are even more boring and, and mundane. You can make boring yeah. suburbia look interesting. It just takes effort, and I think it, I think it's more one of his more subtle movies, though, because a lot of times, you I mean it's a Roger Deakins right. movie. You know it. That's why. I mean, that's why you're going <laughs> to the theater a lot of times for me, at least. Um, and this was just kind of, he just did a really good job. And it, he wasn't painting with the broad, bright colors yeah. that he usually does, where it's really in your face. I think it was more subtle. But yeah, I, I, anything he does, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, I love how he uses, like, those same tilt lenses that he uses in the all of the scenes when any of the characters get high. Those are the same... Um, lenses that he used in Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, which is what I think is his best work and like most impressive and just like blows me away every time. And there's so many like incredible shots that use those cameras so well in that. Make sure to check that out if you haven't seen it. I mean, just the color palette is so good and it just seems like the cinematography is in such harmony with like everything else, like the production design and the costumes and like the actors and like everything like that. Like, they all just work so well. Like the um, cost- lead costume designer, Mary Zoffries, and the production designer, Just Gontour, like all worked pretty hand in hand throughout it. And we're like, you know, talking to each other. It's like, okay, like what colors do we really want for this? What's going to make this pop? What's going to make this seem more realistic but still look good? And I think that's just, you know, that's good filmmaking right there is like whenever you can get in, um, everyone to work together like that. Mm. I think any movie where I just walk away with like really clear um, frames in mind, uh, it's, it's a success for the filmmakers. Um, like mm-hmm. in my head, uh, I have every single rabbi really well framed in their own office, and yeah. like, um, well, obviously Larry up on the roof. It's like this fish out of water. This guy in this like strong man position doesn't mm-hmm. look right at all. Um, obviously I haven't studied cinematography as thoroughly, but this is definitely a oddly beautiful movie and Mm -hmm. each of the, the set pieces, 
are great, except the uh, the temple. The fact that their tile walkway doesn't line up to the middle of the like stage podium thing <laughs> drove me nuts. <laughs> well, I think you have to blame the architects for that one. Yeah. Yeah, I look. I look. You know, I looked that building up because I was really fascinated by just because it. You know, I don't know that much about synagogue architecture, especially like modern American stuff. And it was like really interesting because mm-hmm. you know it looks like a church in some ways, but because it's a house of worship, but it looks like there's just different shapes. And I I, I was looking at a history of that building, mm-hmm. and it actually was sold, and I couldn't find out where what it was sold and what it became. But I was like. It's like a bowling alley. Like, what do you, what do you turn yeah. a synagogue into? Like, there's only one or two things you can do with that building. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I wonder. I thought it. I heard it was turned into a church. About the only other thing you could do with it. Yeah. Um, but it's, <laughs> you know, it's you end up with a non-traditionally shaped church if you have that. But yeah, it was interesting because it's yeah that yeah. the you're right that that was a little bit annoying. Where does where does this rank for you guys on like other Coen Brothers films? Or like, what are your guys' favorite Coen Brothers films? Fargo. Mm. I think Fargo is my favorite. Nice. And is Fargo your favorite TV show, Caleb? Oh, uh, yes. Season three is throwing me for a little bit of a loop. Okay. Uh, but season one, especially if you've seen Fargo and you've seen No Country for Old Men, and you talk about both of those in contrast with Fargo season one, Oh my goodness, it's, it's, yeah, it's incredible. It's like taking Anton Chekhov, throwing him into Minnesota nice culture, um, and all of those themes are so magnified um, and different. It's not exactly the same, but I just, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, co- oh yeah, big fella. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> oh no, big fella, please no. <laughs> uh, a couple of months ago, I was working downtown Chicago and I walked in the Union Station and everyone was dressed like it was the 40s because they were filming Fargo season 4 and I was oh, like no I was like wait it takes place in Kansas City why are they here I'm so- Yeah I'm so pissed yeah I want to work on that TV show if they'd only filmed it in Kansas City I would have done that Apparently there was not and this tracks for me there's not enough period architecture like everything got torn down in kansas yeah. city other than union station mm. would have been fine but right uh it does kind of bother me that they didn't take the effort to go to kansas city and film union station and i will make fun of yeah. all the friends i have in kansas city when that show comes out <laughs> that we played you on tv yeah well i mean we also just have like horrible benefits like there's no tax incentives to come like reason why to come here but they were mm-hmm. like their office was like set up right next to ours whenever I was working in LA and I'd just like go down there and see them and like, like oh hey, how's it going? Like Oh, you know, it's Fargo and That's that. That's that. Yeah. Um uh, favorite Coen Brothers movie. One that I don't hear talked about a lot, but I randomly like grew up with. I guess not grew up with because it didn't come out when I was super duper young. But um, the Hudsucker Proxy. Oh, yes, man, oh, really. that's one of my favorites. I love that so much. We watched that in school. Like that mm. movie set the bar for me for what like characters characterization could be. Um, like I just such strong uh, tonality from each and every person playing a mm. character in that movie. Um, they're but without being like caricature, caricatures 
of those yeah. characters. Um, and that's just like, it, it really just set the bar for me, kind of ruined me for what like a fantastic <laughs> uh, metropolitan story could be. Yeah. But it's also, very like crazy. Like the city design is nuts. Like I absolutely love it. Like it seems like it's like Gotham City with the lights turned on. Like yeah. it's just so weird, but it's amazing. Like the design of that film is great. And like in an interview, Roger Deakins is like, that's like the most underrated Coen Brothers movie. Like everyone needs to go and watch that film. Um, there's still plenty I haven't seen. Like uh, Wilson's Crossing? Miller's Crossing. Miller's Crossing. Yeah. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen Raising Arizona. Oh, that's amazing. I love that one. If you love <laughs> Hudsucker Proxy, you need to watch Raising Arizona. Okay. I've just been yeah. honestly like, it's Nick Cage and I don't know. Oh, he's amazing in it. Like, redneck Nick Cage is the greatest thing in the world. It makes me so happy. Because it's like crazy Nick Cage, but not like the uncaged. I didn't even mean to make that. But like version, you know, like where you see like all the meme stuff of him in like Vampire's Kiss or like Snake mm-hmm. Eyes or something like that. Mm-hmm. Where you're like, the, you feel like the directors have like no control over it. This is one where it's like, yeah they have control like it's like wild at heart i don't know if you've seen that one like the david lynch film with nick cage and laura dern very similar mm-hmm. to that where he also kind of plays like a redneck character in it and but it feels like very contained in it well okay to, to use your un, un uh, unintentional pun metaphor i don't think he liked being caged by them though because don't they have a horrible relationship with him after that movie like whatever they know actually i haven't dug yeah. into that yeah i have something like they they really just won't work with him again which stinks because he mm. he is almost the perfect coen brothers character like his ability to yeah. go n- crazy what what they got out of him in that movie is so good and mm-hmm. yeah it's a super good movie i love it raising arizona um yeah okay i'll put it on i'll move it up on my list it was already on there but i will Sweet. bump it up i just watched uh the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Yes. A couple days ago, which is really good too. And now I've actually seen all of the films, finally. Like, it took me a while because, like, I couldn't get my hands on Intolerable Cruelty and just, like, never got around to watching Ballad of Buster Scruggs. And so now, after seeing it, like, all of their films, it's a really interesting, like, lexicon that they built up of mm-hmm. just. Like, they almost, like, play against themselves in a lot of their films. Like, even in this, I would say, where in a lot of their previous films, they have characters meet up with, like, this wise, like, sage sort of person. And that's kind of, like, this, like, almost, like, coming to terms or, like, realization moment for, like, the main character. And in this one, it's, like, subverting that and doing the exact opposite where he's just like, oh, okay. And it's, like, not even the main character who gets to meet him at the end and gets Mm. the wisdom imparted on him so i just think that's fascinating and like to be able to play against yourself in your own like film is an interesting state to be at for a filmmaker or filmmakers i'm gonna get a chance to dunk on someone i I would contrast kind of you know the 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 similar era uh them him them and tarantino tarantino Mm. kind of never really like the bizarre kind of postmodern uh subverting genre subverting story structure but he never he's fallen into his own shtick over and over and over again now people still like it i still like it a lot of times sometimes but 
it you know what's like you know what the ending is going to be like you know in a tarantino movie so i think yeah that's a really good point that they really you don't know you don't know what you're getting in a coen brothers movie yeah you, you might get a satisfying heartwarming ending you might get a cynical ending like you just don't know and and i think that that really elevates them in a lot of ways because um they're kind of type of movie where you're like you said you're you're kind of subverting a lot of things can become so subversive that it's hard to it it becomes just as much of a trope as everything else so i i think that they're i think they're the best at that of anyone because it's just you know sometimes it's even hard to it's hard for me to ring like without a lit, list in front of me remember all of them because they're all over the place in a good way like just yeah what mm-hmm. the experience of watching the movie is like is so different yeah they are and like one thing i've come to realize is even the films of theirs that are like bad i still like enjoy like i their bad films are better than you know a lot of filmmakers good films um there's still just like so much enjoyment that comes out of it and so much like craft that comes with it too like even if it's not like the best like story-wise or best acted or anything like that there's still something that's just like fun about it mm-hmm. what would you consider their worst what, movie what do you say yeah what's a bad uh, coen's in, brothers movie intolerable cruelty is pretty bad it's kind of like it's just so hard to track with if you're if you don't know like the legal terms and you're you're watching it like whenever i finished it i was like why did they make that movie <laughs> it, mm. I, no, I i just felt like no incentive behind it it's very strange yeah that and like the lady killers is probably the second worst one which that one i found like a lot more enjoyable just because like you know tom hanks is in it and jk simmons and marlon wayans okay. and all of these great like character actors and so there's like a, it's still like really funny even though it's like a pretty like clunky film i haven't seen that either it's interesting <laughs> to say the least so with coen brothers movies you are getting kind of something different every time and you really don't yeah. know what to expect but I do love that, like, there's kind of things that I know to look for if they're making a mm-hmm. movie. And um, I have, a, I, there's probably more themes that are across a lot of their canon. But really, the way they use money in the plot um, mm-hmm. is always interesting and never the same. Like we already said, like, they never, you never see a character interacting with money and think, oh, they're going to do this. They're going to go crazy and kill everyone else. Um, like maybe a Tarantino movie, they might be yeah. motivated towards selfishness and greed. Um, but money and manhood, I think, are really interestingly portrayed in every single Coen Brothers movie that I've seen, and probably not the ones I haven't seen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe because my interest in, yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, but this movie specifically, the way it portrayed men is just fascinating to me Mm. in this um like again i'm not a a guy with a lot of machismo or i'm not like super motivated towards violence but i do want to shake this guy and just like (laughs) say like man up that's the (laughs) phrase that was just going through my head over and over again and the guy who was respected as a man is sai right like rabbi um Crap, I forgot his name. But uh, which one? The second the young one. Or... Oh, Knockner. 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 
is like talking him up like this is a serious man yeah and where does he go does he go to heaven uh what Mm -hmm. is heaven where is heaven yeah and like this is a guy who will be in abraham's bosom yeah really cy abelman yeah (laughs) cy abelman (laughs) he's an able man yeah that's true or even like them being balanced against like the neighbors too is really fascinating yes. where they're kind of like, yes. you know, these like buzz cut, like I'm going, I took my kid out of school to go hunting with my dad, with his dad, you know? And like, just like playing on like the classic American male, like stereotype of the time, you know, of just like this kind of probably like post army man mm-hmm. who's like, you know, encroaching on his neighbors, like, turf so he can make like a uh, woodshed and all that <laughs> yeah well you got the right fascinating you got the right wing family on the left and then you've got the left wing family on the right like there's yeah. definitely a contrast between the neighbors <laughs> where like it's just him kind of dealing with these different c- archetypes of americans and yeah you know the uh the 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 guy the hunting guy serves to just kind of low level run over him and and take his pride away and then the the other people kind of the, the his neighbor is kind of a is very tempting to him and you know it, it's not consequences for either one but it's just interesting oh and that does remind me one of my favorite parts of the movie is not that important but it's the surveyor guy when he just dies oh yeah. <laughs> Like I was really interested to see what what you know this very technical solution yeah. was to this problem, and and then he just no resolution whatsoever. Oh, he dies. This guy who's been talked up, who's like, that's why you're the senior partner, right? Yeah, dead. Um, sorry, I do have like one little correction from earlier on, um, John, not to throw you off or anything, but <laughs> whenever whenever you're giving the synopsis, whenever you're calling. Um, the guy who's like possibly a D book, um, shoot, what was his name? Uh, Groshkover. Mm-hmm. So Reb, I believe to my knowledge is a shortened version of Rabbi. So I don't think that's his first name. He was just like Rabbi Groshkover. Oh, okay. And I could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is. All right. I yeah. I feel like there's a whole podcast about that little vignette. But is he, yeah. but is he yeah, a lot? Fascinating. Same thing. We don't get any resolution. Well, in, yeah. Even in the credits, he's listed as D-Book with a question mark. (laughs) Yes, I saw that. All right. You guys good now for... Yeah, cool, cool. All right. uh, Question number one. What other Coen Brothers film did Fred Melamed audition for? Is it A, Barton Fink, B, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, C, The Lady Killers, or D, Fargo? Can you tell me whether or not it was like the lead for that role, for that film? I don't know what part he specifically auditioned okay. for. He just like auditioned for one of them. I'm going to say Barton Fink. I think you actually may have mentioned this when they were gathering the cast for A Serious Man. It was kind of from people they had either worked with before. Or, and I feel like you actually told me this at one point. Um, I have no idea. Barton Fink sounds about right, like chronologically. That's correct. It's Barton Fink. Yep, so I don't know what part of he auditioned for, 
for that. I wonder if it was the John Goodman part. Th- that's mm. um, that's what I was guessing. Oh no, no, I do remember. Um, it was the uh, the producer, like the oh uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, what is the guy's name who plays him? I can't remember. He's an elf too. I can't remember what his name is, but yeah, oh, yeah. So this one is like these these next two. I'm not 100% positive you'll pick up on the third one. I'm I'm definitely sure you won't like know, but it's just still like a fun guess. But this one's like a, a little trivia detail of the film. Uh, so what crew member gets a name-only cameo in Larry's grade book at the end of the film? A, Roger Deakins, the cinematographer. B, Just Goncher, the production designer. C, Mary Zoffries, the costume designer. Or D, Roderick Janes, the editor. Definitely the production designer that would make most sense to me but now i feel that that's wrong i'm gonna say d uh both of those are incorrect it is actually c oh. who has been their costumer on most of their films and roderick mm. Janes is while technically being the editor just a pseudonym for the two of them so they can get nominated for best editing because you can't <laughs> nominate two people for the best editing see yeah this is trivia i'm learning yeah <laughs> third question so the fabric from Cy Abelman's Hawaiian shirt came from leftovers from what film? Is it A, Superbad, B, Catch Me If You Can, C, The Big Lebowski, or D, Pulp Fiction? I'm saying Pulp Fiction. Uh, I'm going to say Catch Me If You Can. The only, well, there's probably a Hawaiian shirt in that one too. Final answers? Yeah. Yes, I'm locking it in. Deal, Howard. Catch Me If You Can. Yes. Yep, so Mary's off. Freeze worked on that, and she used uh, some fabric that she was originally going to use for one of Leonardo DiCaprio's shirts that she had didn't end up using and just had it like with her. And I was like, oh, yeah, we could use that for Psy. Actually, that would be an amazing story if it was leftover fabric from Pulp Fiction that just sat around for 10 years. And- <laughs> okay, that's fair. I didn't put that together. <laughs> that would have been very old cloth. So the challenge... And this is, John, this is why I told you to, <laughs> that you should study up on films that came out in 2009. Um, the challenge is Serious Na- Man was put in AFI's list of the top 10 films of 2009. What are all of the top 10 films of 2009, according to AFI? That's the American Film Institute. When did Shrek 2 come out? <laughs> Not 2009. <laughs> well, so you already have one. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, we're on a roll. Okay, John, that was mine, so. <laughs> uh, I'll give you a hint that there are two animated films on this list. Um, up. I have to put myself back in the mindset of 2009. Yep. That's one. Um, the Hurt Locker. Yep. Avatar. Nope. Didn't put, I mean, top ten. Okay. Uh. One of the biggest, biggest comedy hits of the decade. Prop. Probably the biggest comedy hit of the decade came out. Super bad. No. I don't... Comedy hits. Uh, they made two sequels after it. Oh, The Hangover? Oh, no. Yep. Oh, is The Secret of Kells considered a, a 2009 movie? Um, It is not on the list. It's not on the list. Okay. should be. It should be. Two animated movies. There's only one Pixar yep. movie. The other one is stop motion mostly how old were how old were you two in 2009 i was 14 yeah because i started high school in 2010 Mm. okay okay 
Yeah, I was like, made me do math. You sixteen, John? I was sixteen. Yeah, I would have been. I'm trying to think what grade that would have been. I just remember really hating like sophomore junior year. I just remember really hating Avatar <laughs> and not wanting it to win. I will tell you that two of the films have very similar names to two of the ones that you've already mentioned. There's a Jason Reitman film on here with George Clooney in it. Is it Up in the Air? Yes. Okay. Okay. So that was one of the ones that has a very similar name. Oh, to Up. Uh, The other one is almost exactly the title of this film, but with one word replaced. A Serious Woman. I almost said that. (laughs) Uh, It has Colin Firth in it. It would have been easier if you hadn't told me the name was so similar, actually. Okay, if you're not in a relationship, you're... A single man. Yeah. I have never heard of that film. Is It's single? Yes, a single man. Yeah, okay. Mm, I did. Okay. Okay. You have three films left. Uh, there's still one animated... Or, so no, sorry, you have four films left. There's one animated. Like stop motion um, and animated... You said mostly stop motion, so it's whoever did Coraline, right? That's the one, actually. Oh, it is Coraline? I was going to say, that's like perfect timeline. Yeah. Yeah. One of these I know is based on a true story. The other two I'm not sure of, but it's like they could be true stories. I have such a bad sense of like when films came out, because I feel like I don't even remember my own life, let alone the life (laughs) that happens around me. Um, Did like Pursuit of Happiness come out? Around no. then? No? Okay. No. Um, so the one that I know is based on a true story is about um, a teenager who is pregnant and illiterate and abused. And, um, uh, oh, um, um, she's trying to... Uh, the Oprah one. Uh, push? Precious. Precious. That, yes. Precious. Precious. My precious. Um... The Oprah okay. one. These really these cool. other two I haven't really heard of. So okay. That's, make it that's encouraging. That's one of them has Woody Harrelson in it, though, and is a war film. Woody Harrelson in it? As almost a policy, I don't really watch war films. Like, kind of. Not really a war film. I mean, yes and no. It's like a home war drama. Like, I don't think there's actually any scenes of war. Yeah, no. I might need a hint regarding the, uh... Nope, nope. No earthly idea. What's the other one? What's the... Give us clues in the um, We'll circle back to the Woody Hills. The other one is about a man from the Dominican Republic who tries to get into Major League Baseball. I should know that, and I don't. What's Roberto Clement? Um, I don't know what this movie is, and I'm all... I should know it. Or, sorry, not Major League Baseball, Minor League Baseball. Oh. <sighs> Minor League Baseball. That just decreased my chances so hard. Tries to get into the minors. It's a one-word title. And it's something sweet. Bubblegum. I'm going to know it and it's going to kill me. It's something that's in bubblegum. Bubbles. Sugar. Yes. It's sugar? Sugar. I've never heard of that before in my entire life. Me neither. Sugar. Okay, so you have... The one semi-war film left, 
Oh gosh, I don't even know. Like, um, how many words? How many words? It's two words. It's the blank. Like, if you're gonna deliver a letter to someone, what are you? The postman. The postman. Yeah. <laughs> the man. <laughs> the postman too. Woody Harrelson stars. If you're gonna deliver news or something, that's the, more what I meant. The delivery. The pundit. The person no. that comes up to your house and lets you know that your spouse has died. But one more. I... Oh, yes. Okay. What would that be? <laughs> the harbinger. No. <laughs> no, I think It I is a juror, though. Yep, yep, yep. I'm following the, with you now. But I feel the, like the, the fruit r- is too low-hanging and... <laughs> it's... The rural juror. Yeah. The Roger. I just talked about that today. <laughs> That's so good. Oh man. The messenger. The messenger. Yeah. The messenger. The messenger? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, classic Woody Harrelson. Yeah, you know. Oh nine Woody Harrelson. Now I'm angry that Avatar you know, isn't isn't I, I'm angry that Avatar isn't in the top 10, and I hate Avatar, but it definitely deserves to be in the top 10. <laughs> well, what are you making me do defending that movie? I know. I was. I thought you were going to be happy that it wasn't on it. I mean, I guess I am now that we got all 10, but... Since you hate it so much. I thought, you know, AFI, I guess, dunking on it, too. So, wait a minute. There's... What movies got nominated for Best Picture that year? Because I looked at that list... Uh, earlier, just cheat on this test. Yeah, because uh, I, I don't. You can recognize... look it up now. I mean, you're not you're not in the quiz quiz zone anymore. Wait a minute, District Nine isn't on that list. That's an outrage. Oh yeah, but they didn't put District Nine on that list, or was it on the list and and we got nine no. out of ten? What? Invict- <laughs> Invictus what? is is on here. These are best picture nominees that year. Or no, mm-hmm. that's that. Twilight New Moon wasn't on that list. <laughs> hey, my favorite I, film, twenty oh nine. I scrolled too far down, but Invictus. I thought I saw Invictus. Yeah, those are good movies. What? I, District Nine is definitely top ten of twenty two thousand nine. District Nine probably should win best picture. It's Up in the Air, Up, A Serious Man, Precious, based on the novel Pushed by Sapphire, presented by uh, Oprah, uh, Inglourious Bastards, In Education, District 9, Blindside, Blindside, Avatar, and The Hurt Locker. Well, can't win them all. Uh, There's no punishment, or I don't have to tell you about an embarrassing story or anything. No, no, not at all. Good. That's, That's for John later on. There we go. Yeah, I get that. John, this is my official apology. I completely provided you with no support on that one. Well, I think that about wraps us up for this episode. Um, (laughs) uh, So, oh my gosh, we have two Johns in the chat now. This is crazy. Are you seeing that? Double John. (laughs) Double John. I now have a majority, uh, and I'm changing this (laughs) to change this podcast to a sports podcast. That's what's happening. <laughs> well, we're going to lose all of our listeners. Uh, yeah, so 
the next film that we're going to be covering is Richard Linklater's Boyhood. Um, mm. It's another kind of classic, modern classic of the everyday man, you know, mm-hmm. story and all that, where you're literally just tracking with a teenager through 10 years. And it's a pretty incredible uh, feat of art. And we're excited to cover it. Uh, yeah. Thanks again, Caleb, for being on here. It was awesome having you on. We're definitely going to have to, you know, get you on again at some other point. Oh, man. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. And yeah, uh, yeah anytime I can just talk it up about a movie yeah. to this depth, I yes, I'm very thankful. Thank totally. you. Well, we'll have to get you and Amber on at some point, do a uh, double, not interview, but double feature on there. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be a blast. All right. Well, uh, make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are at Rules of the Frame. Um, You can check us out right there. I mean, we're in the middle of quarantine right now. We have no idea when you're listening to this, but hey, if you're in the middle of quarantine too, then you can go on there. We're recommending new films to watch every single day. So if you're looking for something good and new to watch, check us out on there. Um, Make sure to feel free to send us a dm or anything like that if you want to have like a conversation towards anything if you have a comment or critique please feel free to put them in we want to make sure this show is as streamlined as possible for you guys also if you wouldn't mind uh, giving us a review on itunes or any other app where you listen to podcasts on we'd greatly appreciate it it helps us make our show more visible and available to other people as well and we just like the the input from that um we got to say thanks to john for the artwork and to Luke Hogan and Caden Reed for the use of the theme song. As always, this has been Film Analysis for Modern Audience. Mm-hmm.